Thanks for joining us at the Business Growth Cafe, where each week we select from a menu of topics for a focused discussion with an industry expert to provide insights that can impact your business's growth with your host, Angelo Ponzi. Hi, I'm Angelo Ponzi, your host here at the Business Growth Cafe, and thank you for joining me. As a business owner, especially in startup and early stage businesses, small businesses, you really spend your time working in your business, not necessarily on your business. That really, that burden of the day-to-day of driving new business, growing your company can be overwhelming, especially when it comes to your financial data and your financial leadership. At the cafe today, I'm excited to have Ellie Eisenberg, founder and president of Straight Line Management, which focuses on providing CFO services and financial expertise to help growing companies identify and exploit key opportunities. But before we begin, let me take a quick break before we begin our conversation. I was recently speaking with the president of a manufacturing company. When the topic turned to competitors, his response was, we don't have any competitors. We're the market leaders and they look to us for their cues. I don't pay any attention or worry about them at all. How many times have you heard this said? For me, as a marketer, plenty. Regardless if you're the market leader, a challenger, you have competition. Whether your competition is a specific company, new technology, or anything else that changes the dynamics of the market you serve, you have a competitor. You need to consider setting up a competitive intelligence program as an ongoing business strategy and not treat your program as an annual task. In my opinion, understanding your competition is as important as understanding your customers. To help you begin thinking about the process, time requirements, and the monetary investment that it takes to develop and implement an effective program, I've created an ebook as a resource that you can find on my website at theponzigroup.com. An effective competitive program helps you keep one eye on your competition while keeping one eye on opportunities. Thank you again, and I appreciate your listening. As I mentioned today, I'm joined by Ellie Eisenberg, founder and president of Straight Line Management, to discuss the importance of financial management when it comes to growing your business. Ellie, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me, Angelo. First, congratulations on your 29 years of a successful business. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's exciting. I, I know that um, in growing my own business, uh, my first business or my second business actually over a 13 year period, I mean, I learned a lot in really running a business, which I've been able to translate into helping my clients and have a more of a holistic view on the business as opposed to just marketing. And so, you know, we, we learn by trial and error and, and our clients get to benefit from that. That is for sure. <laughs> I'm, God knows I made my mistakes early in my career. I should share one with you. Um, when I first started consulting, I went out and I got clients and I, you know, got some, you know, well, the first six months I did nothing but work on uh, uh, jigsaw puzzles because I had no idea how, how or where to find clients. <laughs> but um, I, I started doing some networking. I got one client, then another client, then another client. Before I knew it, I was working 40, 45 hours a week for four different clients. And I stopped networking because I, you know, I was, I was gainfully employed in my consulting practice. And then one engagement ended and then another one ended and then another one ended. And then all of a sudden I had no more business and no pipeline. So lesson number one is I don't care how busy you are. I don't care how much business you have. Um, never stop marketing, never stop networking. It's better to turn away business than to not have business to turn away. And so, um, 
that's that's that was a, a very valuable lesson that I learned early on. Well, and good thing you learned it early on. And and I've had a few of those trials and tribulations where I, I actually took on a client one time, one client for 96 hours, which pretty much only left me like a half a day a week. Yeah. And when that client ended, because in our fractional world, they eventually, for the most part, do end. Uh, same thing. It was eight months later. I had no pipeline. I mm -hmm. hadn't talked to anybody. I didn't do anything. It was like starting all over again. It's nuts. Yeah. And, and the other thing, by the way, in, in a consulting business, and I will talk about you know what I do for my clients and, and what entrepreneurs need in a moment, but in a consulting business, what I've learned is the importance and value of having colleagues who you know you might consider to be my competitors, but um, I, you know, I've, I've reached out to other people who do the same kind of consulting that I do and, and form some, some very valuable friendships. And what's great about that is if a client comes to me and I don't have time for them, I can still solve their problem by introducing them to one of the clients. So mm -hmm. that, that's an important thing to those of you out there who are thinking about going into consulting. Don't worry about competition. Um, your, your competitors or you think it might be your competitors uh, could very well be your, your, your greatest assets. So. Well, it's interesting you say that, and, and, and we're going to get to letting you tell the audience about you. But one of the things that I have discovered, so you you're a, a belong to an organization called Provisors, as I just recently joined. I'm in my sixth month. I think you've been in it for many years, and you're a group leader. And I remember my very first meeting, and I'm sitting in this meeting, and it's like, so what do you do? And the other person on the other side of the room says, well, I'm a branding expert. Another person, I'm a marketing expert. All of a sudden, before it got to me, there was already six people saying almost the same thing I was about to say. But I've learned over the years, just because they say it doesn't mean they necessarily do it the exact same way. So I've actually been networking, with, to your point, with a lot of other marketing people trying to find, are they true competitors, or is there a niche that we can work together on? Because... I have a market research background, so I'm finding a lot of cases I can actually slide into that arena sure. and not be competitive. Since we're already into this, but let's take a little bit of time. Let's put in context for the audience about you and your business and kind of overall what you do to help businesses grow. Well, ostensibly, I'm a fractional CFO or, or you know, part-time acting chief financial officer for early stage companies. Here's the secret. Every company needs a CFO. Every company needs somebody who can who can navigate with you, if you're an entrepreneur, uh, the financial pitfalls. Not every company needs to hire somebody uh, to do it 40, 50 hours a week. Not every company can afford to have somebody do it on a full-time basis. You know, experienced, knowledgeable chief financial officers can cost a bundle. Um, but left to their own devices, entrepreneurs will often um, overlook important issues and, uh, and and not really fully understand uh, the financial impact of, of the decisions that they're about to make. Um, I mean, I have one client that um, had had a product that was a very slow-moving product, and and it was basically a waste of time for him to keep selling it. it would have best, best thing would have been to move on and apply their sales resources elsewhere. Um, but he, you know, he didn't want to stop pushing his salespeople to basically waste their time because he'd invested $150,000 on the tooling and he hadn't recouped that tooling cost. I said, well, you know, Bob, that's a sunk cost. You know, you, you're going to get it back faster by 
directing your salespeople to sell products that that are in greater demand and have higher margin than than just to you know to, to keep trying to sell this this uh, dog of a product. So you know that that's that's one example. I, I could probably fill the next five hours with examples. I won't I won't do that to you. <laughs> but another an, another another example was I had a client who came to me and said. Um, you know, I, I, I worked out the quotas with the with the sales vice president and wanted you to implement the commission plan. And I took a look. I took one look at it. I said, Stan, this this won't work. He said, Why not? I said, Because the, when you add up these quotas, they're a half a million dollars before, below your break even point, which means that if everybody meets a quota, the company is going to lose money, and you're going to be paying extra money that you don't have to pay them. He said, No, that's not right. I said, Listen. I basically got a piece of, I do a lot of back of the envelope stuff. It's, it's just nature, nature of the yeah. business, right? I said, here are your fixed costs. Here's your gross margin. In order to cover your fixed costs, you have to have an equal amount of gross margin and, and, and therefore your sales have to be Y. These quotas add up to Z, which is a half a million dollars below Y. And he said, oh, uh, it's, that, that's not going to work. Is it? <laughs> he said, no, he said, well, what do you suggest? I said, I suggest you go back to them and tell them you got, they've got to increase their quotas by collectively by at least a million dollars. He said, okay, but you do it. <laughs> so, so I had to, not only did I have to you know, solve the problem, I also had to be the hatchet man, uh, which is okay. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that's the kind of nature I have with my clients. Typically what happens is they'll, they'll bring me in on, on, on something that they see as purely financial and I'll get it, get involved with a lot of the operational stuff like commission plans, like, um, you know, bringing in other, other resources. And so that's, that's the nature of the nature of the beast. I will say that the CFO often becomes a, a, a hub for referring all kinds of business to, to his or her clients. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it's interesting uh, in, to talk about commission plans. I, I have found over the years it's kind of one of those areas that, in my opinion, most businesses really don't understand how to set up a truly incentivization plan, if you will, that doesn't hurt the company but really motivates and drives people to want to go out and sell. Because, I mean, ultimately, the sales guys, is, he's trying to make money and they want to sell as much as they can. But I see these kind of these stepping stones and things that just seem awful limiting and, and frankly, it sucks away any motivation to go out. So I was working with a client last year and we were kind of designing their their three uh, three to five year plan. And what we the conclusion we came to without getting into a lot, is most of their business comes from renewals. But to grow, to beat the numbers we needed to get to, we had to get acquisition. In the acquisition, there was no incentive to go after new business. It was all designed around retaining the business that they had. So that was a struggle to get them to think differently. And I would assume that you run into that all the time. Yeah, well, no, that's for sure. And, and you know, maybe after this, we, you and I should compare notes, getting into the weeds a little bit on commission plans. There are two important elements when it comes to commission plan. People, you know, don't often understand this. Number one is you have to be able to afford to pay the commissions because if if uh, if, if it doesn't get to the point where where they're, they're profits and, and you have to say to your salespeople, you know, I'd love to pay you, but I can't pay you because I don't have the money to pay you. That's 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 a disincentive. Two is um, commission plans are not about compensating salespeople. It's about driving behavior. 
And, and so one of the things that, that I like to recommend um, to my clients so that they don't, so, so they, to, to get out of the pattern of driving negative short-term behavior is I, I've, I've become a person who believes in paying commissions on year-to-date sales so that, you know, if, if it's March 31st, instead of doing crazy things to pull sales in, uh, for Q1, if you know that that if you're being paid on a cumulative basis, that that you're still going to be compensated at the same or maybe even higher rate at, uh, on the sales that are made on April 1st, because it's already on top of the base of Q1. So Q1 gets added to Q2, and then uh, you know I like stepped up commission plans so that, that once you get to quota and beyond uh, on a year-to-date basis, you know you're you're still you're you're driving all year round instead of just on, on a stop and start quarterly basis. Um, anyway. That makes that, a lot. Of, it makes sense. I, you know, I, there, I know there's so many different structures and, and things like that. And, and I like what you just said, because again, if that's on that quarterly, it's, if it feels like the hatchet fell and you're starting all over again, to your point, it, I think there's a lot of disincentivization. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working with this company when I was in and I was doing an assessment of them. They had 12 salespeople. And the person, I looked at their quotas for the year and I said to the sale, head of sale, they said, so how long is uh, whatever her name was, Susie been here? Oh, she's been here 15 years. Okay. How long is the guy in the number 12 spot? How long has he been here? Oh, he's been here three months. So how can they have the same quota? It doesn't make any sense. There's like no way he's going to hit those goals. I mean, so anyway, it's, it's crazy stuff. So I do like to ask some consistent questions among my guests because I, 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 I love hearing this part of it. So when it comes to growing your business, what, what keeps you up at night, if anything does? <laughs> it's, it's, that's funny. But what used to keep me up at night was wondering where I was going to get the next client and how I was going to get the next client and, and, and how to, to balance uh, my marketing and networking with, uh, with what I do. Um, Lately, what keeps me up at night is, uh, and I, I hope this doesn't sound obnoxious because I don't mean for it to be obnoxious, um, is what business should I accept and which business should I turn away? Because, you know, and especially because it's becoming, since becoming a group leader of advisors, uh, people come to me all the time for financial models, for, you know, to fix their accounting, to, you know, to, you know, general financial advice, to, you know, to clean up capitalization tables. Um, and, and just for, you know, just for general mentoring, and I, I'll talk about mentoring later. Um, I don't have enough time to handle all the business, and I don't really want to grow my business by adding people. I love providing personal service I don't. I don't want to manage uh, or have to worry about the quality of somebody else's work. So, you know, I'll, I get all the time. Well, why don't you just hire some people and grow your business? I said, you know what? That's that's not um, that that's not a business. You know, going from one to two is not just growth. It's a fundamental change in business model and the way you go about your life. When I go to bed at night, I don't have to worry about meeting a sal- paying a salary. I don't have to worry about the quality of somebody else's work. I know that all of the relationship, all of the reaction is interaction rather, is between me and my clients. Um, so you know, so the question is, how do I grow my business when I'm maxed out? Well, one of the things I've done is over time, 
uh, you know, I have raised my rates, uh, you know, supply and demand, um, but that doesn't seem to have chased away people. Um, so I, I have to become more subjective and more qualitative about how I accept clients. It's, it really comes down to do I want to do I really want to work with you or not? And, and again, that may sound obnoxious, but you know. It, it's not just about the dollars, it's about the quality of life. And so if I meet an entrepreneur and, and they seem like they're, you know, A, that they're really excited and enthusiastic about me working with them and appreciative of the kind of advice I'm going to give them, and, and, and B, you know, they're, you know they, they seem like they're going to be you know, reasonable when it comes to working with them and not, you know, make, not making outrageous demands or... Or just you know be a difficult client, so 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 I really try to make the qualitative aspect of my consulting practice um, as uh, as positive as as, as I can. Um, the other thing is in terms of growing my business, here and there I've been able to when I when I recognize an opportunity, been able to say to to a client who might not otherwise be able to afford me, listen, if you're willing to throw some equity into the deal, I can work at a slightly lower rate. And, and I've had a couple of nice exits, actually, from clients who've uh, who sold that uh, it, it turned out to be a good investment. And that's when I had to wear my venture capital hat. <laughs> because, <laughs> because because you don't want to, you know, it, it's it, by accepting a lower billing rate, you're actually investing in a company, right? Absolutely. So. So you, you have to do your due diligence. You have to like the idea. You have to like the team. You have to believe that they that they have a chance of going somewhere. So I guess, you know, there's very little that keeps me up at night um, other than my wife kicking me when I'm snoring. But um, <laughs> but, but but that's that's kind of how I, I think about my business and growing my business and how I, I manage it going forward. Okay. Well, you know, that's interesting you said about taking equity, and I think that's as a consultant and actually as a business owner looking to attract talent that you might ne necessarily be able to afford. That's always an option. I, I've, I've got a conversation going on with someone right now. Now, I swore I would never do that again. Uh, I did it a lot when I was growing my advertising agency. And, and about a year or two ago, I was in, uh, in my bank and I was going in my safety deposit box getting something, you know, I don't know, passport or something. And I saw all these envelopes and I pulled them out and started reading them. And it was all the deals I had done that pretty much didn't go anywhere. Um, so there were a few of those. <laughs> yeah. And my wife has warned me anytime she hears me talking about, Hey, I've got this guy who wants to trade. No, absolutely not. Um, and I've done a few things that uh, when she told me not to do it, I did it. Actually, I bought a franchise at one point in time after she told me do not do it. Uh, in hindsight, she was absolutely correct, but um, it was a big learning experience on how to deal in the fast food business, which landed me a lot of accounts because I could talk their language because I've been that route. Well, it's interesting. What? The first, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. The first eight years of my consulting practice, my wife kept saying, "When are you going to stop this nonsense and get a real job?" Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then all of a sudden, it all came together. So. I don't hear that anymore. But, uh, yeah, there you go. They have, they have a way of doing that. Spouses, <laughs> significant others. So. What's the best business advice you've ever given and or received, if it's different? I do a lot of workshops on entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurial finance. Um, one of the best 
pieces of advice I like to give entrepreneurs who are just just starting out is lower your personal overhead. People think, individuals, business people think that they can build like the Great Wall of China between their business and their personal life. Um, when when you can't pay your bills, and especially if you're, you know, if you're married and creditors, credit card companies are calling you and calling your spouse, um, asking, you know, bugging you about getting payment, that kind of distraction can really take your focus, your mind and your focus off of, um, off of your work. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, there are a lot of things that, that, you know, that people spend money on that they think they need that they really don't need. Lower your entertainment budget, lower, you know, you know, just take a look at everything you're going to go through your credit card bills and your bank statements and ask yourself, can I, can I live for the next three months without this? I say the next three months, really, I'm thinking the next, you know, until, you know, but if, if you can live without it for three months, you find you can live without it for a lot longer. Yeah, exactly. Lower your personal overhead so that you don't stress out over whether or not you're going to be able to survive the business. That's that's number one. Um, number two is is you know, have a really good financial model, not just for investors, but for yourself, so that you have a, a, a sense of what you really need in order to, to finance your business going forward. Um, <laughs> I guess the other piece of business advice I'd love to give people is don't invest in worrying because the rate of return on worrying is always zero. Yeah. It's a terrible yeah. investment. That's, that's great advice. I, I know as a, you know, as a, as a small business owner and entrepreneur throughout my career, this is my, fourth business, mm-hmm. um, but not my first consulting gig. There's, there's always that level of fear and worry, but this, but I, you know, I, 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 every day I tell myself spending time worrying about something I can't change is a, is a huge waste of my time. It and is, you know, you just push that, you push those thoughts away with both hands yep. and just dive in, do what you have to do. Um, make sure that you, you know, keep focused uh, you know, I have a I have a friend and colleague. He's actually uh, in my provisors group. His name is Chris Emma King, and and he's given me some tremendous tips and tools on how to get more, um, squeeze more productivity out of out of each day. And um, you know, investing a little bit of time with him has really made me a lot more productive. And I try to share with my clients the stuff that that makes me more productive in my own life. So, well, that's a great, again, we're going to segue again, but that's actually a really uh, great point because, you know, I call it shiny objects. Mm-hmm. You get just so easy as we sit at our desk to get sidetracked, the email pops up or, or, you know, your phone call comes in and it's how do you segment your day um, or whatever you're having to do. And somebody told me a long time ago, and I and I do practice this, is when I'm really focused on trying to generate something, I'll turn my phone off or I'll put a timer on and say, I'm not going to do anything but what's in front of me for the next hour. Then I'll look at my emails or, or I'll go do something different. Try it for three hours. Try setting aside a three-hour block where your email is off, your phone is off. I don't mean an airplane mode. I mean off. Off, because yeah. psycholo- psychologically, powering off a, a cell phone actually um, ha- has more impact than turning it in in uh, 
in, in, into air, airplane mode. Um, you can you can gain a lot of productivity that way. Yeah. You know, yeah. The way, Angela, as far as, as far as business advice is concerned, you know, everybody should should take stock of where their personal value is and what they can do best and and outsource as much of the rest as you can to the extent obviously you can afford it um you know if, if your talent is in marketing you should do the marketing if your talent is in product development you should do the product development entrepreneurs will often try to do all things and mm -hmm. and they're not investing their time wisely doing things that are where they have to invest time learning how to do it so um that would be another piece of advice i would give yeah and i think you know is i have found and believe that you know a lot of the companies on the smaller side or startups they just fall in love with what their product or their service offering is and they think they can do it all and you had a great point is understand really where your strengths are and then capitalize on other people's strengths in order to help you achieve the goals that you want to achieve and so looking at your business what I what I could take away, you kind of break it down into three buckets: CFO, strategic planning, management services, and training and workshops. So as a as a business, talking about being distracted, <laughs> do you focus you know 33, 33, 33 percent of your time in those buckets, or is this all based on just services? And so how do you manage these kind of buckets, and where's your strength, and where do you like to focus? Okay, so that's that's really interesting. First of all, in the in the training and workshops area, um, I, I don't charge for those. Um, maybe I should. I've been told that I should. Mm -hmm. I, I do a fair amount of mentoring because a um, I enjoy doing it. Uh, there are a lot of entrepreneurs who can't really afford extra services. They're they're pre revenue. They're just getting started. So there are a number of organizations here in Southern California. Um, there's the Stubbs Alderton Markley's Precelerator, uh, Expert Dojo uh, Accelerator, Toolbox LA, Hub 101, um, and, and I make myself available and I give each of these organizations, you know, a couple hours a month. And it's just free time. Uh, I also will do workshops um, and, or teach classes, excuse me, at... Um, entrepreneurship programs uh, of local universities. I've, I've been a guest lecturer a number of times at, at, at USC and at Chapman University and Westmore College and CSUN. Um, and, and that's all free time because, A, I love to teach. Uh, I actually thought at one point in time earlier in my life that I was wanted to be a college professor and uh, minored in education when I got my MBA. Uh, so I love to teach. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it also, you know, from a marketing standpoint, you know, getting up in front of a group and, and, and sharing information, I think it's the best marketing I can do. Uh, so that's not a third of my time. It's considerably less than a third of my time. Okay. Um, but I addressed it first because it's it's really the labor of love. It's the thing I, I, I love doing the most. Um, the other stuff is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's situational. So I... I'm CFO for some companies, and I do discrete projects for others. For example, it's not unusual for an entrepreneur to be introduced to me. They're raising money. They're putting together a pitch deck. They need a financial model that gets slid into that pitch deck. 
uh, and I will do those discrete projects. Sometimes they end up rolling into a longer-term mm -hmm. engagement or a bigger engagement. Um, but uh, I'd say that, that the CFO, you know, day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month CFO work is probably 50, 60, 70 percent of what I do, depending on depending on the week. Um, I'd say that the discrete project work is probably more in the 20 to 30 percent range, and the the workshops and teaching that it, and, and the and the mentoring that I do at, uh, at uh, these startup accelerators is probably more in the 10 percent range. Okay, you know I, I find in the in the CFO role and especially kind of targeting the. And I assume you work with any business, but you, you tend to position yourself as early stage startups and, and, and small businesses. And there's this understanding that I, my understanding and my belief actually is this, these companies and many companies actually really don't understand the story that their financials tell them mm -hmm. or how to read that story and how to interpret that story. Because a lot of times, like one of my, I sit on a, a board for a client and we're always fighting to get the financials you know, not 45 days after the close, because at that point in time, in my opinion, they're just useless. And so, so how do you, and, and, and when you're dealing with your clients, I mean, what, what's important when you're looking at, so a small business is looking at kind of the financial reports and the data is a CFO, what's most important in you delivering the, the kind of information that they need and you need to make important decisions. So, I'm going to say there, there are three things. It's, it's margins, it's trends, and it's cash. Uh, by margins, it's important that every employee, every entrepreneur, employer understand the variable costs associated with sales. If you sell a dollar, how much additional cost does that dollar add to your bottom line? And a lot of times, it, you know, Gross, gross margin is not, it, you know, on a financial statement doesn't give that answer because those costs of goods sold that have some fixed costs in them, and there could be some variable costs that are actually buried in the sales and marketing. Depends on where you put commissions. So the mm -hmm. first thing I want my clients to understand very clearly is how much does every dollar of sale drop to the bottom line. Is it 20 cents? Is it 30 cents? Is it 40 cents? Is it 50 cents? And I'm a big, big believer and lover of high margin businesses. High margins um, cover up a lot of mistakes in business. And they also make a big difference when it comes to cash flow. That's number one. Um, number two is trends. I, I, I love, rather than to give a client a financial statement and say, here's where you are now. I love to provide a report that shows monthly financials, January, February, March, April, May, June, July, so they can look across and see where there are aberrations, because aberrations um, can be one of two things. One, it could, either, either it's an accounting error, which means somebody put something in the wrong bucket, or two, there was a decision that caused that aberration. Maybe it was a decision to hire, maybe it was a decision to fire, maybe it was an ad that was placed. I want my clients to understand how their decisions change their financials. And the best way to do that is looking at trend analysis. If you're looking at, at a quarter or a month or a year in a vacuum without, without the comparative uh, over time, 
you lose that. Um, and, and the third thing is that you always need to understand um, how much cash you have and how long it's going to last and, and uh, you know, the, whether or not you need to take action today to, to be able to stay in business later. I mean, a lot of my clients you know, are not don't have years and years and years of profits and they have, you know, they have to worry about, you know, how much mm -hmm. longer do they have before they need to you know, either, either make a, um, a difficult decision with, with their company or start to look for additional cash. So those are probably the most key things that I would say. Okay. And I would assume that with, with a kind of the size of companies and early stage startups, I mean, it's, it's so critical for them to have this clarity that, you know, if you move left, you move right by an inch, right? It, it changes the game. We could do a football analogy, you know, to the left, to the right, everything changes. So I would imagine then this, this constant um, observation and, and monitoring and governing, it becomes extremely important. No, it does. And I'll tell you something else. And it, it's, it's maybe as something as simple as, as knowing what payables you can pay, which ones you can defer. I mean, I have one client that was expecting a big payment from a client three months out and, and the fork, the near term forecast showed a dip in cash until they got to that point. I said, I said, I said, Lewis, all you have to do really is, you know, if we can figure out which items that are, that, you're expecting to pay before that money comes in and push them to the other side, then, you know, we'll be fine. Um, a lot of times, you know, they don't realize that, you know, a call to a landlord or a call to a supplier, mm -hmm. um, you know, explaining the situation can buy them some time. I mean, it's, it's seems obvious, right? It seems obvious to you and to me. However, it's, it's, they're not, you know, entrepreneurs just don't often don't think about these things. Right. Um, did, did you do a lot of negotiation on payment terms and things like that? Does is COVID really broke in? And so I know um, that was one of the kind of operational aspects that I heard a lot about is go negotiate. Yes. Um, so, yes. Um, in, in one case, um, I, I went to the client and said, said, we need to talk to your landlord now see if we can if, if we can get some rent abatement maybe back end some of that um i have a client that uh three years ago um this is obviously pre-covid but three years ago they were in default with their bank loans and they were going to do a a um a crowdfunding event and they couldn't do it and i said i said we have to go to the bank and s negotiate something or else this crowdfunding event is going to happen and i came up with a proposal that basically said um let's take you know let, let's let's take what we have um pay one percent per month which would spread it out over 100 months with a balloon payment after three years and and uh um the bank accepted it and they got out of default um, we're coming up on the three-year balloon payment period, and I'm going to be renegotiating that also. Sure. Uh, I think we'll be fine because they've um, uh, they, they've been <clears throat> on time with all their payments to date, and you know the bank doesn't want the client to go under because then they won't see anything. So, you know, we'll we'll do that. Uh, interestingly enough, for me, is that uh, COVID has had. The, the opposite effect in, in, in my life, 
primarily uh, because one of my clients uh, has been a tremendous beneficiary of COVID. They manufacture a germicidal device that, that kills um, viruses and bacteria that get sucked into the air conditioning system. And so their business has gone through the roof and, um, and, and their cash flow has been very good. So, uh, and, and, and that's taken up more than that, more of my time than any one client typically would. But, but yeah, no, there's there's there um, there's been a fair amount of that. You know, we've had to we've had to look at headcount, we've had to look at rent, we've had to look at uh, um, renegotiating bank line payments. So, well, and that's that's the I'll call it the beauty of, and as we sit in C suites as a C suite marketer, C suite CFO, I mean, we're really involved in a lot of different aspects of the business, it's not just finance. I mean, you're really having to look at. HR and look at people and look at, you know, capital equipment and all these different things that can have an impact. So it's not just, hey, I need somebody to do my books. I mean, it, that's the kind of the low, low end of the totem pole. Mm-hmm. I, I did want to, you know, uh, a lot of times I hear we'll do our annual marketing checkup. I was like, oh, well, if we're only waiting once a year, it's like your annual physical. A lot of crap can go happen between now and then. And so I always encourage client. Hey, every 90 days, let's have it. Let's have a test. I, I'm working a lot with 90 day sprints and not getting out too far mm-hmm. because things are changing so rapidly. So that annual health checkup, business checkup. I mean, when it comes to a financial checkup, is that an annual thing, or do you recommend, or you recommend every 90 days, six months? Hot. It's for the uh, listeners out there. That's a really good question. Uh, I don't have a formal process. Um. You know, and I think that a lot of times, if you know, it, with with finances, especially with counting, um, putting disciplines in place at the front end is really critical. It's it's not been unusual at all for me to be brought into a situation where the you know, the books, quote unquote books, are just a mess. The chart of accounts was set up improperly. There are too many accounts there's too much duplication they don't know what's it you know they don't even i mean i remember one client where i, I spent a day interviewing everybody and looking at the actually maybe it was a week and at the end of the week i had to go sit down with the founders and say you know your books are fiction they're journal entries that don't have any backup nothing makes any sense so what i like to do is i like to establish a regular monthly discipline the first thing i'll do is streamline and rearrange chart of accounts so that the accounts make sense relative to the business. Mm-hmm. The second thing I'll do is I'll set it up so that every account on the balance sheet has to be reconciled, fully reconciled every month to detail. So it's not just a bank reconciliation. It's a fixed assets reconciliation. It's a making sure that accounts receivable and accounts payable tie to the agings and everything in the agings makes sense. It's you know making sure that everything that's in prepaid expenses you can get a list of all the items and it ties the balance sheet. If, if you can look at detail and be comfortable about all the detail then you could be comfortable about what's in the balance sheet and, and here's here's <laughs> here's the dirty little secret in accounting over the life of a business your profits are equal to the total amount of cumulative cash that comes in minus the total amount of cumulative cash that goes out everything else is just timing differences and that's what accounting is. It's making sure that expenses and revenues are in the right time period. So when, when you do a, an accrual, an estimate of how much um, you, you owe 
employees in payroll that hasn't been paid yet because they've worked this period, but they're getting paid the next period. All you're doing is pulling expenses in from the next period into this period. The total amount of payroll doesn't change. Um, and that's true with, with lots of you know, accruals. So, so if, it wants, if, if you can nail down the balance sheet so that there's a monthly discipline to make sure that everything is reconciled to detail every month, and, and if you don't have that reconciliation, then, there's, then, then you have to make an adjustment. If, if you have confidence in the balance sheet month after month after month after month, then you can also have confidence in the, in the net income month after month after month after month. So, so that, that financial checkup, if you will, uh, is, is really a regular monthly discipline. Okay. And in turn, confidence in your decision making as well when it comes yes, to of course, of the course. numbers that you have. So I've got, uh, we're, we're starting to come towards the end here. And I do have uh, just a couple uh, oh, more questions. Oh, this is too much fun. I don't want It to- is fun. I'm enjoying this tremendously. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there are, there's not one or two nuggets in here. There's a, there's a whole bushel full of, uh, of nuggets um, that I know the listeners are going to really benefit from. Two more things, and then I'm going to have you sum things up. What's the biggest mistake that you that you see businesses make all right well i don't know if this is going to be the biggest but i'll just give a couple of examples number one is um not investing in marketing because they don't have enough sales to support the investment in marketing (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know i have one client who i've saying for years you know you've got you've got to do more marketing you've got to do more advertising you've got to do more social media marketing you've got to do this got to do that and, and his response has always been, when I have more sales and I can afford to do it, I'll do it. And that is just complete backwards thinking. And, and for those of you who are listening to this podcast, Angelo did not did, 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 did not uh, uh, tee this one up. And this is just this is my, this is my honest own observation. Um, that's number one. Number two is not having. Uh, HR best practices. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs think that they can, you know, they can take shortcuts. The wage and hour laws, the uh, Assembly Bill Five, the, the disciplining and and providing feedback to employees, making sure that your HR um, ducks are all lined up is really important. And I know it seems like it's secondary to sales and and product development. You know, I don't care what business you're in. It's a people business. And you have to take care of your people and make sure that, that they're getting the right kind of feedback and, and that uh, they're being treated, treated fairly. So um, those, those are two really big mistakes. Um, another big mistake is waiting too long to start the fundraising process. Um, it, the truth of the matter is that it takes time to close a deal. Um, and if you're already out of money, it's probably too late to start. I, I think I'll stop there in the interest of time. Uh, All right. I could probably spend a whole hour going through what I consider to be serious business mistakes and flaws. And if well, those were good ones. And, and, and thank you for letting people know I did not tee you up for the marketing uh, no, conversation. No. But, but a lot of that is about the uh, viewpoint of the business owner, whether marketing is an expense or it's an investment. And like I think we talked it in one of our provisor meetings, I mean, when COVID hit, the first thing I saw was everybody starting to pull back, slash their marketing budgets. So that's not the first time in my career that I've seen marketing suffer. And later on, it's like, oh, we shouldn't have done that. Well, absolutely. And so I spend a lot of time trying to 
motivate people to and, and educate people mm-hmm. to understand it's a, it's a mistake. So my last question then, what what inspires you? What gets when you get out of bed every day? What inspires you? That's that's really interesting. Um, first of all, what really inspires me is uh, making a difference and hearing clients tell me how much they appreciate the advice and, and, and you know, the things that I, I tell them to do for them. That that inspires me. Um, at, at, at the risk of sounding trite, um, I have a wonderful family and, you know, they inspire me. You know, my wife and I have been married for 46 years. Uh, we have congrats. That's great. Thank you. Two daughters and, and, and three grandchildren living with us. And so, um, being able to experience our, our multi-generational household and, you know, and, and do things for my family and, and inspires me. <laughs> Baseball inspires me. <laughs> I love, I love the game of baseball. I'm missing it terribly. Um, but really just, you know, I, I love what I do. I love my clients. I, I, I love when, when, when they say thank you and I know that they mean it because, you know, I made a difference uh, in their life. When I, when I have an opportunity to point something out um, that, that they might not, that, that they might overlook, or would overlook, um, putting together simple yet elegant financial models that, mm. that uh, really show uh, my clients and their investors how the business is, 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 is working and, and doing it in a way that allows my clients to, to work with the models without screwing them up themselves. Um, that's, that's really inspiring, you know, solving interesting and complex problems in these financial models. Um, uh, you know, that, that really gets my juices flowing and, and running my provisors group. I love being a group leader. And, and I've loved joining your groups uh, last uh, couple months. It's been a lot of fun. Well, and come again. I hope uh, I, I, I'll keep coming until you tell me I can't. <laughs> Fair enough. We got a deal. Yeah, it was interesting um, in talking about what inspires you. I, I, I sit on a board for a company, but when I first did an assessment for them as a board member, it, at the end, my client said, we need to hire you because obviously you pointed out a lot of issues and, and problems. And so uh, that assignment lasted about 18 months, but I still sit on the board. And in our last board meeting, we were looking at, you know, what, what's going on. And the uh, president leaned over to me and he says, see, we've implemented everything you told us to. Thank you. And that, that meant a lot because a lot of times people start to deviate once they uh, kind of get out from under your thumb. Right. Sure. And, and th- if there are any other consultants listening to this podcast, I would say to you, um, don't follow the, the advice that I was given years ago when somebody said to me early in my consulting career, don't ever give anything away. Don't ever be afraid to give anything away because the best marketing you will ever do is, is to show people that you have solutions to their problems and go ahead and give it to them. Because if, 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 if you're looking for one or two hour engagements, then you're, then you're looking for the wrong thing. If you're looking to have long-term relationships with clients that know and like and trust you and, and you feel good about them, don't be afraid to give away free advice. Not a lot. 
Not a lot. I'll, a give any, I'll give anybody an hour of my time. Yeah. And I do um, the same. So, um, so Ellie, thank you so much. This has been great. I mean, so I'm having a wonderful conversation and, and, um, and I've learned a lot about you and this first time we've actually sat and had a kind of a one-on-one. So I really appreciate your time. It's, it's been very educational and I hope we can do this again, but why don't you tell listeners how they can contact you, your website, your LinkedIn and all that kind of good stuff. Okay. So my, um, my company name came to me in the shower. Um, that was an inspiration also is straight line management, uh, S T R A I G H T. L-I-N-E-M-G-T, it's abbreviated, .com, um, and I am simply Ellie at straightlinemanagement.com, and uh, my cell phone is 818-427-9391. All right. Well, well, thank you so much, and thank you for listening and joining us at the cafe today. You can find out more about me, read my blogs, watch my videos, or sign up to receive more information at theponzigroup.com or certainly connect with me on LinkedIn. And if your business is ready for growth and you need a CMO, but you're not quite ready for a full-time person yet, connect with me. I'd welcome the opportunity to explore the benefits of using a CMO in a consulting interim or fractional role. And lastly, please subscribe to this show. And if you're already a subscriber, I encourage you to let others know about the great content like you heard today, because it's been fantastic. You can go to the businessgrowthcafe.com my website, or find us on any major podcast platform around the world. And don't forget, join me next week at the Business Growth Cafe. Ellie, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's discussion at the Business Growth Cafe with your host, Angelo Ponzi. Take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and visit our website at www.businessgrowthcafe.com. Read Angelo Ponzi's blogs at www.theponzigroup.com.